What's up, folks? You're listening to The Creative Leaders, a podcast that focuses on in-depth conversations with leaders, founders, and top creative talent working in animation, gaming, and beyond. I'm Stephen Scott, founder and CEO at Big Mouth Audio, and each week I sit down with producers, leaders, and creatives from gaming, tech, audio, film, TV, and more to uncover their stories and bring you the lessons they've learned along the way. We'll discuss the journey our guests have been on in their career, their approach to running companies or leading teams in the creative industries, as well as the ups, downs, challenges and successes of bringing great stories and compelling content to their audiences. Justin, thanks for for joining us today. I wanted to kind of start off just by asking you the same question we're going to ask all our guests in this podcast, and that is, give us your origin story. Tell us a little bit about how you got into the games industry and, and of course, you know, ending up as the, the, the co-head of games at uh, Blazing Griffin. Well, first off, great to be on. Thanks for inviting me. To go to my origin story, I wonder how far back I might actually go back to our common point, which is St. Joe's. Because, you know, as I found out today, we went to the same school yes. <laughs> a few years apart. And I suppose I bring that up because at um, secondary school, I started to hang out, I suppose, with a, a few other people who, ha- who were interested in the creative industry. One of whom, my brother, Nason, was really interested in filmmaking. And we had a few other friends to know a couple, Ryan Clackery and Ryan McHenry. And kind of with a, with a loose collection of, of people, we started to make short films together. And then people went off to university. During that time at university, we came back together and made um, Zombie Musical, um, which was a short film, which would ultimately be made into Out of the Apocalypse by my brother who produced it. Myself, I went off to, to, to leave that thread hanging, I suppose, Myself, I, I, after university, went off to Hong Kong um, to be a management consultant. So, you know, really detached from anything in the, in the creative industries. Although I did work with some media companies during my time as a consultant, the type of work that I was doing was strategic planning, looking at, for example, companies that wanted to enter a new market or were looking to raise investment or for investors looking to invest and looking at kind of the, the high level strategy and drivers of, of some substantially large companies, but also how it relates to, I suppose, the, the economy and the, the macroeconomic factors. But I was really engaged, I suppose, in, and ultimately I left, uh, left that company because I was engaged in looking at a single company and how can you improve that company over the long term? A lot of my projects were just a few weeks or a few months where you would parachute in, help with a specific issue and then jump out again. It was really hard to assess how much we helped because you would leave. You would give a plan and you'd leave. And there's something to be said for sticking around and supporting people through a plan. And that's kind of what engaged me, I think. So I started to work more on a freelance basis and being able to, to help companies more long-term. And while this was happening, Out of the Apocalypse was, was being made. Um, Nason continued 
down his, his route with the people that he'd, you know, kept connections with. That formed into Blazing Griffin, which is a company founded by three different aspects where we have games, we have film, we have post-production. And the, the kind of merger of this was, to, I suppose, get into to the weeds of, of this, it coincided with investment into the company, um, a seed round, and this was to help set up a post-production facility. It was helped to finance a game and it was helped to, to finance Anna and the Apocalypse. Um, and around this time, I began to help out um, from a business planning perspective. And then there was subsequent rounds. There was a, there was a Series A where again, I helped. And it, it was clear that there was a, a bit more support that was needed as the company grew. It grew from small individual teams who worked quite closely internally together to needing um, something a bit more formal and structured to become an organization and a scalable organization. So I moved back from Hong Kong and initially started to work with Blazing Griffin in a commercial role uh, across the group. There were, my work was quite varied at the start, but it became increasingly games focused as there was a lot of opportunity in the game side and eventually kind of naturally um, drifted into heading up games along with um, the other co-head, Neil McPhillips. Um, so it was really kind of based on a kind of a, a needs situation where I don't think I planned to work in games. I kind of ended up here based on the needs of, at the time. Um, but it's, all, it's also kind of quite fortuitous since I was always a really passionate gamer. You know, I played games. It's been like my main hobby, but in my main time sink for, for a long time. And I became really interested in the management of that and, you know, seeing how um, some of these larger companies such as Blizzard or Riot or Valve um, look at other games and the economy of those games, because my background is um, economics university, which initially kind of quite interested me in diving into kind of some of the design principles of, of various games, which was interesting um, as, you know, we, we look at the variety of, of games that Blaze and Griffin does, but, you know, certainly at the time where I, I joined Blaze and Griffin just before the launch of our multiplayer game, Mergers Pursuits, and multiplayer games specifically, you know, have a lot of data. You know, you have a live service element to it, which responds to that data where possible. So it was, it was a nice again, fortuitous kind of converging um, of a lot of these different elements. Um, so it was a very long-winded origin story, but yeah, and here I am, here I am today. No, that, that, that's great. It kind of raises an interesting point, almost kind of from a startup perspective, you're kind of looking at, you know, not just launching the games studio, but also the post-production and also the film and TV production side of things and kind of going straight out, t t taking that business model into the market to get Series A funding, Series B funding. How difficult is that when you're pitching a company that is so focused on, you know, generating IP, films, games, um, and obviously how important was the the, the post-production, the service side of that as well? Because I know it's notoriously difficult to, to raise finance for, you know, a company saying, we're going to make these films, we're going to make these games, and it's going to be great. How, how difficult was that to, to take that to the market and raise the, the capital? So it was challenging. We, our, our investment source came from private individuals 
And I think that is standard for similar companies around the state. So looking for angel investors or high net worth in individuals who are able to invest in something for the, for the long term. But yeah, I mean, you, you've raised a good point that, that finding investment is always challenging and it was, it, it did take a, a long time to, to secure funding. We we're very lucky to um, find the investors that, that we did who, who want to walk the path. And also kind of a shout out to the Scottish government as well. Through the various in- initiatives that we, we took advantage of, we were able to, to sink into, for example, providing matched funding for, for investment, which is, is very useful. In terms of our proposition, there was something attractive of having three departments. So from a, from a, a three different revenue streams and those revenue streams having slightly different profiles, you have games, which can be from a EBITDA level or from a, from a profit level. It can be depending on the structure of the, the game studio, because there are a few different structures, but you can, you can make do. And then you can have a big hit, but you do have a cost base with there. So, you know, you're, you're targeting to be break even, and then you have ideally a big, a big hit. And then in film where you have a very low cost base because you're employing just a few producers, um, but you may not, you know, you may be a, a loss, a small loss for a long period of time. And then you have that, that big hit. And then you have post-production where you're looking to generate just a, a steady profit. So there, there was an interesting kind of diversification of, of uh, revenue streams that was uh, attractive. I suppose with that, there was also our ambition and our vision to be more. You know, it, it's, we didn't go into the room and say, hey, look at our diversified portfolio. We went into the room and, and says that this is our vision to be an IP-focused company who has the ability to produce to concept and realize IP across the majority of, of mediums. So, you know, we have produced games, films, we have pre- co-written a book. You know, there was a, a book of Annie the Apocalypse came out. There was music with our, our games and, uh, and our films. And, you know, obviously with, with Post and House being able to do it end to end was important. So, you know, it was again, our vision being that we ourselves as consumers of media are attracted to an IP and will consume that IP across its mediums. If you're a fan of Star Wars, you may have read some of the books and comics as I did growing up, as well as, you know, watching the films. And there, there is something creatively engaging about being able to do that under, under one umbrella. It also changes the way that you approach creating that. So, you know, the benefit being creating that under one roof, you can already at the inception of, of IP take into account its various forms, which I think is beneficial. Um, although I would say, you know, this, this is our long-term vision. There, there are, when you get into the funding and distribution of each individual project and product, you're not likely to find project investors you know, film funders who are like, yeah, we'll fund your film and game. No, they'll just fund your film. And you don't find game investors who will, who will do both either. But you will, if you have a hit in any one of these, you will find a follow-on to, and, and so it's, it's good to be kind of well-placed for that, for that follow-on. 
But then that also goes back to looking towards, which is what we did, looking towards equity investment to support a, a company that can have a, a transmedia focus, you know, even if there aren't the project funds available for that. Excellent. Yes. Um, I think it's quite an interesting point. Just, uh, you know, it's something we are kind of looking at um, or have been looking at recently with our kind of move into the uh, podcast space with, you know, uh, original IP, which, you know, we've, we had a couple of things out over the, the past few years and it's, I know, I know it's like a, it's an interesting topic just now, especially for game startups. Kind of on that point, I know it's not, it's not an in-house IP, but one of the, the games, you know, that you brought out last year, Poirot, just picked up BAFTA. How was that? How was that experience in terms of, you know, getting, you know, finding out you were nominated, you know, actually winning the award, the, the, the occasion on the night? How did, uh, how did that sort of play out? Yeah, so it was it was really nice to to see that we were were nominated. I think although the nomination was a little bit too sweet because we saw you know who else was nominated and two really high caliber games, both of which doing something really interesting and maybe interesting is not not the right word, but showing the versatility of games as a medium. One game was was a historical focused game exploring the history of Aberdeen. And was in, in part a university project, which I thought was was really interesting to look at games, not just as a form of edu- uh, education, because I think that would probably not be doing it justice. But it had a it had a really I'm trying to think of a better word for nice, but you know, a nice purpose to it, and uh, you know, it was meaningful. And the 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 other nominee was incredibly meaningful because it was a a game that explored the creator's father's depression. And as we have done in the past, when we're nominated for something, we go on to the Stephen pages and we check the reviews. They're yeah. like, oh, wow. You know, overwhelmingly positive because so many people had, had played the game and said that it mirrored their own experience. So we went into the BAFTAs thinking that we weren't going to win but because of the, the meaning that the other, the other games brought um, with them. So we were surprised when we, when we won and happy, obviously, to have won. It was also for us quite meaningful to be at the Scottish BAFTAs where, you know, it is a film and TV event. And it's nice that games is being shown. It's, it can stand alongside film and TV. And also for us as a company, because we, our post team and our, our film team works on a number of the productions that were, were nominated and, and many of them won, although certainly in post, we, we weren't the people going up and accepting the awards. You know, it was the, the, the best actor for their role in, in a TV show that, that had their post here. So, you know, it, so it was nice, I suppose, that we were able to go up and accept an award uh, as Blazing Griffin. Um, uh, at the BAFTAs, yeah. So it was, it was a special event for us. Yeah, yeah, and and m- meaningful in its own way as well, given that y- you guys managed to get on board with the Agatha Christie Foundation. Is that is that the yeah Agatha Christie Estates? Was Estate, yeah, yeah, so yeah, yeah, yeah. Agatha Christie Limited. Yeah, they're they're a really nice bunch, and the chairman is the great grandson of Agatha Christie herself, um, nice. and they are. They're a, I say old estate. They carefully curate her works and the adaptations of her works. And, and I think because of that family connection, they are quite considered about how the, her properties are used. 
but it was really nice, you know, early on, we started to talk to them about what a game could be and said that we wanted to do something new. You know, we didn't want to do an adaptation and there was a fair amount of excitement on their part of looking at the character of Poirot and creating a new story. You know, for us, we wanted people to come in not knowing what the answer was to the mystery. And, and yeah, we were, I think we were quite fortunate that they were both open to um, new stories, but making Poirot quite younger, uh, quite a lot younger since Poirot in our game has just started his career as a police officer and as, as a detective. And in the books, you know, I think the, the first time that you see him, he's must be in his fifties, I suppose. So yeah, again, it was really nice to be able to, to work with them and not only get permission from them, um, but be able to have a conversation with them around their ideas and, and what's important and their priorities and use them as a, as a knowledge base of, that we could draw from as well. Excellent. So kind of sort of moving on from, from that, is there anything you can share with us that Blazing Griffin, uh, particularly the games department, are focusing on just now? Obviously, you and I caught up at the, the Scottish Games Expo fairly recently and I got to... I got to have a shot of the uh, the augmented reality board games, and uh, which you know, obviously is a very interesting area to to explore. So, is, is there anything you can sort of uh, reveal or, or tell us about uh, where you're going next? So, we have a few projects which are unannounced. I can I can speak about them. So, we're working on, as you said, a couple of AR board games. One of which is Catan, which we're we're really happy to to be working with. We are bringing that to a platform called Tilt 5, which is an AR platform where if you buy the device, you are given a pair of glasses that you can see through, as in, you know, they're not blocked off like a a VR headset. And then you are given a gray board. You plug your glasses in, you launch your, your game on your computer. And then when you look at the board on your table, a diorama will appear. And we initially ported um, our game Murder Mission Machine to that platform. And Murder Mission Machine is, is about these, a crime investigation game where you're examining crime scenes that are dioramic. So it was really nice to be able to, to bring that to AR. And so we'll, we're working on Catan right now with the idea being that you can invite people around to your house and um, give everyone a pair of glasses and, you know, immediately see the Catan being digitally represented through holograms is, you know, I think it's a, it's a really cool piece of tech. And I think AR generally, as opposed to take it on a little bit of a tangent, AR generally has struggled to find its place because it's, you know, like um, a Google Glass was now, you know, almost 10 years ago when you had people, you know, having a heads up display on their glasses and then it not being super useful that Till 5 is specifically targeted to be for game night. You know, they, they know exactly what they're doing and they want to enhance game night through holograms and digital experiences because just going on your computer or going online with your friends, you lose something. And then also in the day and age of board games with tons of setup, you know, there, there are some advantages of, of digital board games and you have then an ability to have some, uh, some pleasing aesthetic to it as well. And the other board game that, that we're working on, which hasn't yet been announced, we've really been able to embellish the 2D. It's also a tile-based game and 
that it's just 2D art when you, when you get the tiles in the physical version. And we've been able to do 3D holograms, which is, has been really nice um, for that, for that game. So we're, we're working on that at the moment. That's helped us in terms of getting a foot in the door when it comes to AR and VR. And we've also been working on a, a VR investigation prototype at the moment. We're quite interested in, in VR as a space that, you know, opens up what you can do as a player, especially when it comes to investigation and our idea is that you're with a co-op partner at the time, which I think is also quite, quite important mm-hmm. and not to, um, I don't know, wave a flag for Mark Zuckerberg, but you know, the, the, the way that Meta in particular are moving things is VR is a social experience, which I think is quite interesting. Yeah. They, they kind of put their flag in the ground to say it's the metaverse. They didn't say it's all of these single solo experiences. They did say it's a social experience. And I think that's in part informed by how people have engaged with VR recently on Quest and through experiences like Rec Room or Pavlov. And there's something to be said about being in a VR space with someone else, um, which is quite compelling. So we're working on that. We are continuing to work in the adventure genre. Again, nothing announced, but Poirot, the first cases, was very restricted in its feature set. You examine, you talk, and then you have a mind map to solve. We have an interest as the studio to increase our feature sets to give more gameplay tools to our players, allow for more gameplay diversity, and then increase the the cinematic feel of our games or the narrative immersion with our games. And that's generally our, our, our vision as a studio, one of our strands. So that's something that we're working on with a, a current game that's announced. And then finally, we're working on a, a survival horror game, which is on mobile, which is an interesting both challenge and opportunity for us a game which where you are placed into an environment with a monster that you need to run from, that you need to avoid, that you need to distract. And that's been a lot of fun uh, to play with. There is a narrative in that outside of the the main kind of environments that you you interact with. Mobiles are challenging. Uh, well, yeah, again, a challenging and interesting space. You need to kind of refactor your your PC console mind a little bit to think about where's the appropriate place for narrative, how much narrative, and also you know, a lot of game design considerations when it comes to you know free to play versus premium. So I feel like I've just, yeah, we're doing kind of three things which seem quite different in terms of AR, VR, mobile, PC console, but we have a general interest in continuing to be agnostic, device agnostic, genre agnostic, but looking at ways that we can enhance people's experiences with IP. And all three of these strands are IP related, um, existing IP related. So I think that's something that's quite interesting for us as a studio. Yeah, absolutely. How, how much of that diversity there, how much of that is is down to your own sort of business strategy in terms of you know keeping on top of trends within the industry versus how much of it is this would just be great fun to do or I'd love to do something in this space. Let's explore that further. So there is two aspects to it, I suppose. Yeah, one is the reality of running a business and and needing to do work. And many of these have followed on from other small opportunities, which became bigger opportunities. The funny thing about having a business plan is 
you know, it, it, it kind of doesn't matter in some ways, you know, it depends on what opportunities come up and you can engage with. And then those opportunities kind of can determine. So, you know, I, I think in a, in a perfect world, you, you just say, Hey, we're, we're going to do this. And then that happens. And then you're like, Oh, wait, hold on. Some of our staff aren't working on anything. We need to get them to work on something. Um, and so again, there's, there's a studio management aspect of, of running a studio, which requires diversity. And, you know, we don't have the luxury of just having everyone on a single game that gets bigger with every iteration. But I would say that each of these three things are interesting to us because again, we're, we're interested in how people engage in with, with IP in different ways. And there is something I think creatively engaging from a design perspective about looking at your audience, looking at the gameplay type, looking at the IP and, and converging them in, in a way that's attractive. So there's, there's something that's, and maybe this is also from my days as a consultant where, you know, you're jumping from company type to company type and the solutions that you're looking for are very different, but th there's some fundamental drivers here. You know, you're, you're looking at your, your audience preferences. You're looking at how can you give them a compelling experience, but the type of experience is, is slightly different. And it's, it's interesting that I've always, I've always been interested in a bit more diverse uh, approach in terms of not just being pigeonholed. And I've always kind of thought, why don't musicians just, you know, who are like heavy metal, just do an album that's classical or classical musicians just do, you know, a rock and roll album. Because I think that there's something creatively engaging about shifting genre and understanding that um, a bit more. So yeah, there, there is kind of part and part, you know, there, there is again, necessity, but something that, that's kind of creatively engaging for us at, at the same time. Yeah, sure. And uh, I suppose that's a good, a good uh, segue into asking you about the importance of, you know, player feedback and, and building communities within the, the games space as you're developing or, you know, following on franchises. And I think that's quite, it's quite apt to sort of look at that just now when, you, when you're looking at, you know, various projects that are all slightly different and, and um, kind of pushing the boundaries a little bit as well. So yeah, I was, I was interested to know if you could, if you could sort of elaborate on the, on the importance of that side of things. Yeah, player player feedback is a can of worms. I should say <laughs> it's a real kind of any feedback actually is a can of worms. You know, you have you know massive amounts of of money across all industries poured into understanding audience sentiment or customer sentiment, and this is again something interesting from my consulting days. You know, when you're trying to do, people like your product or will they like your idea, and You've got surveys, you've got focus groups, you've got, you know, observational studies. And so there's a whole, yeah, I mean, a whole kind of academic study around feedback. So it is incredibly important, but there's, there's a ton of pitfalls in it. I think one of which is maybe summarized as people may not understand the game that you're making or have. And therefore their feedback will be related to how they perceive the game versus sure. how you perceive the game or how you want the game. And this is also important in, when it comes to an in-development game. So I suppose to, to kind of backtrack a little bit, you know, after first cases was released, we poured over our Steam reviews 
we, we saw every comment uh, about what people liked and what people didn't like. And it's also important that the people, if people like it to understand, how should I say this? That people who had a positive opinion of the game to understand their likes and dislikes versus people who had a negative opinion of game and understanding their likes and dislikes because they'd be different. So people who liked the game um, praised the story and that they felt that it was almost a visual novel, which was for them a good thing. And the people who didn't like it, well, they did think that the, the story was okay. They didn't like the fact that it was a more like a visual novel. So there, there's an issue, like, what do you take away from that? Does that mean we invest into it being more of a visual novel? Does it mean that, that our communications should be around it being a more visual novel style rather than adventure? Because I think a lot of people came at it as your standard point and click adventure game and it didn't hold up to that. So again, kind of looking at people's perceptions of what the game, they think the game is um, and how it falls down. And then for you to invest in it being more of a point for the next game, for it to be more point and click adventure, do you alienate the uh, initial fans who did like it or do you build on those fans? And I suppose the short answer is I don't know. And, and at a certain point, you start to try to solidify, maybe this is the important takeaway is to, to solidify your perception of the game and if people are getting that and you know, trying to make sure that's coherent. I'm not saying we do this well, but you know, trying to make that, make that coherent around across the design of the game and across the marketing um, of the game, some of which is, you know, out of our control. So it's, it's, yeah, it's, it's very complicated. It is, I suppose to speak a, a bit further about this, you know, in development, we, uh, on our mobile game, we do play tests where we ask people to play the game, you know, through a service and um, see their screen recordings and their voices. And we can be quite focused around that and we can also ask specific questions and that's that can be quite helpful it's a it's a bit i suppose like focus groups in in consumer industries but there it's good to i'm going to find out this one thing and so it's good for like onboarding like do people understand the mechanics they may come back and say i'd give this game three out of five it's not my kind of game where they may say you know it's five out of five but like you don't care about that actually don't care if they like it or not you care do they understand you need to use this tool in this situation. And if yes, okay, we've done it. Let's park the other stuff and let's continue. So there's, you know, there's definite benefit in yourself understanding what you're testing because there just, there can be so much noise and so much, you know, personal preference here. Yeah, I think I could speak for, for hours about this. It's, <laughs> it's a tricky, it's a tricky area. <laughs> no, I think that, that answers it really well, actually. It is one of those things, isn't it? You're, you're kind of damned if you do, damned if you don't. And I, yeah. think, I think that's a great takeaway, actually. It's, it's kind of going into it with a very clear strategy of what, what do we actually need to find out here? And let's start there and then yeah. and, and go from there. So getting into the really hard questions then, what's, what, what have been some of the challenges, successes and failures that you have encountered along the way you know, in your role as co-head of games? The, yeah, you know, there, there's a lot of challenges. I think the reality of making everything, of, of making anything, is that it's challenging. And, and, you know, there are creative challenges, I suppose. You have a vision for a game or a product, and that will be hammered from different directions as it's created. And it may, may not be feasible, things may not work. 
and particularly with Poirot, we had quite a challenging gameplay framework because our gameplay is about making deductions. It's about having two pieces of information, which you as a player, and this is the core gameplay, you link these two pieces of information together to deduce something. So there is a man dead on the floor with a puncture wound. There's no weapon in sight, but there is a puddle of cold water next to him. So you can deduce that he was stabbed by, you know, a dagger made of ice. Um, now, so, so in that way, the deductions are intimately linked with the story. And here's the story as someone's been stabbed by an ice, an ice dagger. I think many games are able to, uh, and benefit from a detachment of story and gameplay be that in puzzles in terms of like, hey, this is locked. Can you solve the jigsaw to unlock it? Or action sequences in terms of there are, there's a mystery, but we're going to tell you the mystery, but can you shoot some bad guys along the way? So it, our story being intimately linked with the gameplay was challenging and creating these deductions across the whole game. And then, you know, you come to the end of the game and, you know, the end of the development process. And by the time that this has happened also, you know, you're, you're thinking about getting it ready for release on Switch. You've, you've had the, the game localized, you've had the, the voiceover completed and you're like, oh, that deduction at the end of the game would really benefit from having something seeded earlier on in the game. And you're, you're kind of screwed, you know, there, there are compromises that, that you need to make along the way, although maybe you just need to plan a bit better. (laughs) And, but that, that's definitely, I think one of the challenges of needing more time always when, when making something creative and, you know, being able to iterate because it is very, it's very difficult to paint yourself into a corner, I think with any product and make do. And this is, again, it's true, I think across, across all products and, you know, there's a people aspect to it is it's all very well saying, Hey, let's do this. And we'll like, well, no one can really do that. Or someone likes to do that instead. And we had a, a character artist who created these fantastic 3D models that our publisher really liked. And then he unfortunately had to leave. So, you know, what, what do you do? And the, 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 I think just the realities of, of managing a creative project is, is also, is always going to be challenging. And then you add to that studio management and, you know, we need to get our milestones paid and we need to make sure that, you know, we can pay our staff every month and well, what are they going to do after they finish the project? We need to spend time on that. But because you're spending time on that, you can't spend time on the thing that you're working on. So yeah, it's all challenging, I think. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. I mean, so we've probably covered a lot of it there actually in that, but I was going to ask you about advice for aspiring game developers, you know, startups and even, you know, established industry professionals. Do you have a set of takeaways that you would pass on to people or or, or advice? I think, yeah, it it really depends on on the phase of of life and and where you are. I think it's easier for a, a graduate or someone who's studying, who's some, someone who doesn't need an immediate income or maybe preparing it to just create. I, I think that's beneficial. And that's also, um, I suppose this is also something that so we, we do talk to, to grads quite a bit and we, we hire grads and what we look for is a portfolio of, of work that they've done. And I think, you know, in any creative industry, it's, it's a passion industry. 
and it's, it's worthwhile doing it. So if you're an artist creating a lot of art because you enjoy it, or if you're a designer creating designs and some of these designs don't need to be full games. You know, we've, we've seen simple branching narrative experiences on, you know, on a web app or um, Unity applications that someone may have developed with a team of other people. Uh, so there, there is, I think, value for people just, just doing it. That, that also, I think, applies in film as well. And, and it's interesting if you look at, at film, I think anyone who works in film when they were younger just made a ton of like short films and, and things and kind of cut their teeth. The, it is, I think, a bit more challenging to give that advice to someone who is an industry professional and is maybe wanting to come over into games or, or in a games company, but, but wants to go into a different area because you're so much of your work or of yourself is assessed you know, by what work you've produced. And I can understand there's a, a bit of a catch-22 there when not having the time to produce that work, but needing that work to, to move on. But I think that there's, there's an important social aspect to it in looking at getting connected, looking at game jams, for example. But again, it's, it's hard um, to find the time. So I don't know if I've got any best trade advice for, <laughs> for people in the middle of, of their career. What do you see as the, the kind of future What's your future vision of games for the gaming industry? Now that could either be in a sort of macro level or it could even just yeah. be, you know, the Scottish games industry uh, itself. Do you have any kind of predictions? You know, it's, I, think, I think it's interesting to look at, at trends that have emerged over the past five to 10 years. I think we've seen a, train, a trend towards people being a bit more device agnostic. So Fortnite being on mobile. Call of Duty Mobile being quite a, a high quality experience. It's also interesting though that that's still separate. You know, Warzone isn't on mobile. It's Call of Duty Mobile. In the Apex Legends Mobile, I don't think that's a, a crossplay title. So there is still you know, some walls between devices, but it looks towards a bit more device agnosticism. And it's interesting the you know the FTC move to block the. Activision Blizzard acquisition by Microsoft are because of the um, competition within cloud gaming and xCloud getting um, an unfair advantage over, well, certainly over Stadia now, but over, you know, GeForce Now or it is, it is a little bit rich because a lot of the you know, PlayStation and Switch have competed because of their content exclusives. And Microsoft has tried to do the same, but it is interesting that a lot of the attention has been on cloud-based gaming right and i think there's there's a I, I i'm interested to see where that goes in terms of how we use devices i i'm always reluctant to think about the future of more innovative devices like ar and, and vr but it was interesting that x clouds have recently integrated with quest i think that was announced in Met, the last meta quest so you know, VR being an and Quest device being a fairly low power device, but being taking advantage of the cloud to uh, for its power, I suppose, is an interesting uh, thing that will happen. The, I suppose the, the other thing that's interesting is, you know, while I'm saying you can now play Fortnite on your phone, both because of the power of your phone or the power of, of the cloud, 
there's an interesting kind of market divide between AAA and, and Super Indie. And I feel that in the last five years, 10 years, the divide has, the divide has grown more. So you're better off making a very low budget game or a very high budget game. And there's, there's little space in between for a medium budget game because you are, you're going to be compared to much higher games if you try and do something similar. So, you know, Hercule Poirot, the first cases was compared to Sherlock Holmes, um, which is a much bigger budget game and has a team of animators who are able to do some really sophisticated mocap and have a lot more of that. And we also don't have the luxury of being a very low cost team that could spend two to three years on some quite simple, you know, more indie style mechanics. And it's, it's interesting and to dive into this a bit more. One of the most played uh, games on the Steam Deck, actually this is probably a good analogy on this, the Steam Deck top games is, you know, Elden Ring, GTA 5, and number one is Vampire Survivors, which was like a solo dev effort. And you also have, you know, Dwarf Fortress coming out on, on Steam and doing really well. And that, that being in development for years by a couple guys, there's a, there's a challenge in the, the business structures where, yeah, yeah, either needs to be super low cost or yeah, again, needs to, needs to be really, really high cost for, for it to stand out. And, you know, I don't, I don't know where that will take us, but it's definitely a challenge and I, I think the gap will just kind of continue to widen so I expect a fair number of of you know increasingly cinematic titles and there's an interesting blend there but as as an an art form or a medium that stands beside again film experiences so The Last of Us being an interesting example of that where a lot of people played it with someone else watching their spouse watching them play and I think we'll see we'll see more of that um, again on the more expensive side and then I expect we'll see just the, again, a, a flurry of low titles. That's not, not, yeah, so I'm not being very futurist about it. I'm basically just describing the market. As <laughs> I don't know. More of the same. More of the, no, I, th- I think <laughs> yeah. you're absolutely right. And one of the games I was playing last year, The Quarry. Oh yeah. Which was, had some interesting features in terms of you could literally just put it on movie mode and just sit back and watch it, which I didn't do. Yeah. It's, it's not really, you know, um, I'd rather you know, play it or watch an actual film, but um, it's just, you know, interesting to what you're saying there with, you know, partners and other people in the household yep. watching the gameplay. And then even on the sort of the super indie side of things, you know, it's maybe kind of investing in doing something a little bit kind of nice with the aesthetics and it's kind of, yep. it, it, you know, it, it, it becomes more of an art form, you know, rather than the super cinematic stuff. Yeah, so no, that's, I mean, thanks thanks for sharing sharing that. So I think the just the last the last thing to ask you then, and um, we're going to ask everyone this this question is it's a bit existential, but you know if you could be remembered for one thing, what would that be? I might throw a curveball. I suppose I don't really want to be remembered. You know, I, I, that's also kind of an interesting thing of my role here and how I see my role is enabling others in terms of what I'd like to do or achievements. You know, I'd like to make an incredible experience, a memorable experience and cinematic and, and one that really to a broad audience feels impactful. 
I think, you know, I'd like to achieve that. But I think I also recognize that that requires others and also requires, you know, the lifting up of them. So I'd be happy, I suppose, if someone at Blazing Griffin is remembered for uh, creating yeah, a memorable experience in our games. But yeah, I mean, I, I put the center on, on that achievement. It is interesting that you bring up the quarry and one that uses a lot of mocap is an, is an immersive, one use of that word, um, immersive narrative experience with real actors. And I think that that for me is uh, something I think we're walking towards. We, at the heart of what we strive to do though, is an integration of narrative and gameplay and looking at interesting ways of, of playing about with that relationship. Um, so I'd hope that, and I guess what I'm saying is our objective isn't to recreate a super massive game, but to bring a, a AAA quality to our games and, and retain some, you know, innovative gameplay features and, and keep that as our core. Brilliant. I think that's uh, the perfect way to answer it. Yeah. Well, you know, thank you so much for, for joining us, Justin. I really appreciate your time and all the, the valuable insight you've given us. Hopefully we can have you back again someday as well as we continue and grow the podcast and uh, I really appreciate you volunteering to be one of the the first <laughs> the first guests yeah thank you no, yeah thanks yeah thanks for uh for having me on and you know your your questions are very thought-provoking and I'm I'm more than happy to dive into wells of of thought and <laughs> but yeah you know it's it's especially you know you're you're phrasing the last question as existential I think all of your questions have been existential and it's, it's useful for me to kind of recap where we've come from and what we're doing. Yeah. You know, it's, it's so easy just to, again, you know, think about, you know, what next month is going to look like yeah. and it's useful to take a step back, I think, and, and examine, you know, our vision and, and what the industry as a whole, whole is doing. So yeah, it's been, it's been great uh, being on. Good. Well, I'm glad you get some, uh, some value out of it as well. <laughs> Yeah, nice. And we should be up for a coffee soon, given that we're just uh, around the corner for, from yeah, each other. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So let's make a, a point of doing that for sure. Yeah, nice.